0: All right. If y'all would open up your Bibles to Psalm uh, Psalm two, the second Psalm. As one of my one of my seminary professors used to say, it is not Psalm chapter two; it is just the second Psalm. Uh, the book of Psalms is made up of one hundred and fifty different psalms composed over uh, many. Many uh, different hundreds of years, and, um, and it has been compiled in such a way uh, really to show us what the Christian life is like, and I'd love to go into detail about that, but I don't have time. Um, Psalm uh, 2, before I get preaching, let me just kind of remind you, we all know what uh, fire and brimstone <laughs> preachers are like. Sometimes they come to our campus, and uh, you know what they sound like? That's not what we're going for. But, there are times when Scripture really does warn us. And we do want to be faithful not just to what Scripture is saying, but how it's saying it. And this is, this psalm is a warning psalm. It's it's also a psalm that will give God's people a lot of comfort. But it is a warning to God's enemies. And ultimately, we see how it leads to Jesus. So let's read Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I have set my king on Zion my holy hill I will tell the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that by your gracious condescension to us, that you would warn those who are on the opposite side of this battle, That you would call your enemies to surrender and lay down their weapons and to to come to Jesus Christ. Knowing that in him there is love, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, there is grace. For Lord, as long as we are your enemies, we'll never win this war, we'll never win this battle. And Lord, even when we look out into this world and we, we are tempted to live more in fear than faith. Help us to know that no matter what your enemies try to do to us, that you merely laugh at their plans, and that you reign, and that you rule, and you are the ultimate reality. Lord Jesus, help us to see you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask all this, Lord, in your name. Amen. There was a man who was once... Uh, misdiagnosed with a brain tumor when he went to the doctor and what was interesting about this is that whenever the doctor told him he actually had a brain tumor the doctor initially gave him just a couple of days to live and you would imagine how that would probably change the way you would you would live you would live certainly more in light of death and the more this man lived in light of death he, he, he did the things that he really wanted to do he wanted to pursue his dreams and actually the more he did it He went day after day, week after week, month after month, and he realized he's living a lot longer than what the doctor said. Sure enough, living for years like this, he was able to do a lot, and life was very sweet to him, and then he found out that it was a misdiagnosis. But imagine this. Imagine if it was the complete opposite, that the man came in and he actually did have a brain tumor. And it was going to kill him in a couple of days. And the doctor knew it. But the doctor didn't tell him. That would be a tragedy. And actually one of the worst things we can do as Christians. If we really believe the Bible. And we really believe what the Bible says. The Bible does speak about sin leading to death. It, it, It does speak about judgment day. It does speak about hell. And if we believe that that one of the most unloving things we can do to people is to never tell them about it. Now, that doesn't mean we always and only talk about that. But shame on us if we never talk about it. That's one of the most loving things we can do. And ultimately, actually, when we talk about sin, death, and hell, in accordance with the gospel, it is always leading to the one who took that for us. But if you're not a believer, you need to be sobered tonight. You need to be sobered about who you're trying to pick a fight against because you're not going to win. But if you are a believer, you need to take great, great comfort from this psalm because even when God's enemies rage against you and rage against God, you will not lose because He is your King. When these Psalms were written. They were written for different contexts. And all the Psalms would eventually lead to Jesus. But in order to appreciate the Psalms, we need to appreciate them for what they were in their original context. And then also how they lead to Jesus. And Psalm 2 is one of those Psalms that uh, the Israelites would, would sing actually at a king's coronation. When one king would die, and it was the time period between one king's death And right before another king's coronation, Israel was vulnerable. And the surrounding nations would threaten Israel to take over. But their hope lied in having a king. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the need for a king and what happens when we have the true king. The main point of this text is, as I mentioned earlier, Don't pick a fight you can't win. Look at verse 1. In verses 1 through 3, we see God's enemies rage against God. I was talking with one of my buddies earlier about this psalm, and he said, man, if I was able to preach this psalm in a modern context, I would call this sermon Rage Against the Machines. Um, And that's what God's enemies are doing. They're they're raging, it says there in verse 1. Why do the nations rage now, when he's asking this question, why, he's not actually looking for, an, looking for an answer of like, I wonder what their mindset is. He's actually thinking about the craziness of it. He's like, why in the world would you try picking this fight? Frankly, it's this, it's stupid. It is, it is idiotic. to try to pick a fight you cannot win. The nations are raging. They're like the sea that's being stirred up to sink God's ship or God's people's ship. And they're raging against God. And it says, look, there, the people's plot in vain, meaning that they meet together and they they come up with all these different plans to see how they can attack God and attack his people. But nevertheless, it says at the end of verse 1, it's all in vain. In other words, this. Everything that God's enemies try to do, it all amounts to nothing. It's crazy. But yet, look at verse 2. They're defiant. It says the kings of the earth, they set themselves, they, they, they put themselves in this firm position to say this is our stance. We are against God. We are against God. His people. They're defiant. But now look at who the enemies are. Look at verse 2. It says what? The what? Kings. The kings of the earth. The the rulers. Now God's enemies are anyone who has rejected God to be king, to be sure. But unbelievers tend to be led by earthly powers. That is actually seen throughout all of Scripture. There are actually earthly powers, we even see some of those today, who have set themselves against God and against His church and are working to do anything they can to destroy God's people. They're defiant rulers, and that's a good reminder for us that in any leadership position, leadership is a very crucial thing. It can either, either be a great thing to help God's people flourish, or it can cause people to perish. As John MacArthur says, Satan can do the most damage by corrupting the leadership. And look at their power. What kind of power do they have? What calls them what? The kings of the earth. How different from God. The God of heaven. The throne of all thrones. The one throne. The sovereign one. And these are merely kings of the earth. They're nothing in comparison to him. But yet they, they think that they have this power, this authority, this strength, and so they're defiant. And they have this strategy. Look at verse 3. Here's what their strategy is. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's what's so, here's what's so ironic is that God's enemies you look at God and you look at God and picture him as the worst master ever. That living in light of him and living according to his word is like slavery. And you try to seek freedom elsewhere by rejecting God and just living the life you want to live. Here's the irony. With God, that's the only way to freedom. And when you pursue your own freedom, it actually ends up being the worst kind of slavery you can ever imagine. That's the irony. When you run away from God, you don't get what Jesus has promised to you if you come to Him where He says, Look, come to Me. All who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take My yoke upon you. For My yoke is easy. That's what Jesus, that's what He offers us, and He means it. It's a yoke that actually lifts us up and helps us run, and it's a yoke of freedom. But when you reject Jesus, you get the yoke that bears you down. And in God's enemies, in their strategy, here's what they're wanting to do. They're wanting to reject God's word, to reject God's commands, to reject God's ethics and reject God's gospel of grace. You see, that's what God's enemies have always been doing ever since the fall. It's looked in many different ways, but at the core of it, that's what it is. Saying no to God so that I would be God. That is bondage. That is slavery. You see, it's still happening today. The nations today who are not just you know different people groups, but it is anyone spiritually who is far from God. And they've aligned themselves against God and, and all the stuff you're seeing, you've even been seeing this week. You've seen things like a biological male win the NCAA swimming championship in the women's division. That is the nations shaking their fists at God saying, we will not let you rule. We will not let you reign. Or even this, the USA Today announces as the woman of the year is a biological male. God, we don't want you to define who we are. We will define it. You might be the creator, but we're not going to submit to you. You will not be king. We will. That's the nation's raging. And there might be things that professors may even say, maybe on this very platform. There are things that are promoted in social media, and it looks popular. It looks like things that that should be promoted, but don't miss it. They're raging against God, and it's crazy. You see, this happens so much. It's happening in Canada as pastors are being thrown in jail for for having church. It's happening when people deny the fact of when life begins to the point now where some people are even saying they don't even know when life begins. It's happening on college campuses by just living in the hookup culture and you're saying, look, God, I can do with my body what I want. It's happening whenever we embrace the LGBTQ lifestyle. It's happening when we promote TV shows, some very popular right now, that have sex scenes all in them. It's happening when people are massively persecuting the church, and it happens even when people like the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, that are actually killing Christians today. It's happening. This is where we are. And you might be an enemy of God, and you might be pursuing these ways... But here's what will happen to you is that Psalm 57 verse 6 will be fulfilled. The Christian who is the, the, the one describing this perspective here, they say, they set a net, talking about God's enemies, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They, talking about God's enemies, they dug a pit in my way, but here's what happens to them. But they themselves fall into it. Listen, in a lot of ways... God's enemies, just keep doing your own thing because you'll fall into the trap that you try to set for God's people. Your tactics will only hurt you. That's why the psalmist is saying, why in the world would you try to fight a fight that you can't win? One person recently tweeted this. One of the greatest lies told in American history is that sexual freedom is actually liberation. And then we pretend that these results, and he's about to name them, that these results are simply normal things. And these are the results when we pretend that sexual freedom is liberation. STDs, abortions, trust issues, broken hearts, callous feelings, emotional distress, damaged self-worth, unwanted pregnancies, and the feeling of abandonment. When you seek freedom outside of God's ways, it only leads to bondage. It is crazy to try to fight a fight you can't win. But that's what God's enemies do. And what does God do? Look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits, when it says that word sit, it means an immovable throne. He is fixed in that position. He is reigning unthreatened. He who sits in the heavens as opposed to the earth he laughs. You ever seen someone get punched in the face and they laugh because they know what they're about to do? God is not threatened one bit by his enemies. He's laughing. He is literally what the Hebrew is saying. He's, he's mocking them. God's enemies, are, they're laughed at by God because God's not threatened at all. That's actually scary for God's enemies. God's not threatened by his enemies at all. But oh, what great comfort. If you're a Christian, that you can have in this. Because, let's be honest, it is scary. You can see a lot of things that are happening in the world. But God is not threatened. You see, there are two types of people. There are people who are like thermometers. There are people who are like thermostats. A thermometer, it tells the temperature in a room. It just describes the events that are happening. But a thermostat sets the temperature. You see, if you're a thermometer, you're the type of person when you just look at the world and you just see the things that are happening. But when you only look at that, you're very much overwhelmed and you tend to live in anxiety thinking about the what if. What are God's enemies going to do next? And that's all you do is just only look at what's happening and that's it. But thermostat people, they don't ignore what's going on, but they set the temperature. They run to God's truth and they're reminded that God's not threatened. And I need to look to him more and more because he will win. Even when it looks like God's enemies are going to defeat us, God will win. Win. Amen? That's a big truth today. No matter how much people try to promote cancel culture, God is undefeated. You see, this is why, as one Navy SEAL said, and this is what we need more of in the church, where he says, calm is contagious. And we can be calm knowing that God is not threatened. But then look at verse 5. Look at that first word. It says, then. That word in the Hebrew actually means that at one point God's laughing will stop. At some point His patience will run out. There is a then moment coming for all God's enemies. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and He will terrify them in His fury. You see, if you are an enemy of God at some point, if you don't repent, a then moment will come. And there's one of two things for you. It's either Jesus or it's you. Either Jesus is judged as the greatest enemy of God ever because of sins placed upon Him. And you get grace and mercy and forgiveness. Or, the then moment is coming for you. Then, He will speak to them in His wrath. It is... Very stunning to think of what that then moment would have been like for Jesus as he goes to be the substitute for sinners on the cross. As Jesus becomes the ultimate enemy. And think about God's wrath that would be poured out upon him mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually. But God wasn't playing around when darkness came over the land at noon when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus Christ was treated as the ultimate enemy of God. And rejecting Him is not good news. You see, if it's not Him taking God's wrath, then it'll be us. In verse 6, here's what God says. As for me, in, in total defiance of the plotting and the schemes of earth's rulers the lord says they might be trying to do some things but here's what i'm going to do i'm going to set my king up and it's going to be my king he's going to reign god's confidence is in his king and we'll see why it is that way in a second but here's what we need to be reminded of yet again god is not threatened so dear enemies of god don't pick a fight you can't win don't do it. God's enemies are raging against God. They're laughing at God. and They are conquered by God. Look at verses 7 through 9. Now it's the king speaking. And he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God's king is so confident. He's not threatened. And in these coronation ceremonies for the Israelite kings, every single time, do you remember what would come to their minds thinking about 2 Samuel 7? Maybe this is the great king to come. Maybe this is the great king who will have the name and the security and the unthreatened throne and the dominion. And God's promises remain true ultimately for every king that would be installed ultimately it's looking for the greater king to come and it says there that when he tells of the decree he says the lord said to me you are my son you see kings were in the ancient near east thought to be adopted sons of the gods of the nations wherever they were and it was ultimately looking at israel because that's That's what it was for Israel, is that the Israelite king was to be seen as the adopted son of God. And isn't that a good truth that is showing us where it's ultimately pointing? The true son. He would one day come. And he wouldn't be an adopted son. He would be the son. That's actually what this text is, is showing us. You see, it uses the word there. It says, you are my son. Today I have what? Begotten, ye. Here's what this word means. Knox, my son, is begotten by me in grace. He comes forth from me in grace, okay? That's what that word begotten means. But here's the thing about Jesus, and this is who, as Hebrews 1 mentions, this is who it is. This is who he's talking about. But the thing about Jesus is is that there's never a time when the eternal Son of God ever came into existence. He has always been. That's what makes him God. And as St. Augustine once asked the question reflecting on this, when it says, Today I have begotten you for God who creates time. The question is this. When is today for God? It is always. The Son, think about this the son the second person of the trinity has always been coming forth from the same essence as the father so that when the son takes on flesh and he is god and man god can say that's the king i am confident in why because that is god jesus is not a junior varsity god he is god it's the son of god who reigns as the true king the second person of the trinity clothed in human flesh and that is what gives the father such confidence because what can mere human beings of earth do against that king if you're a believer you have great confidence because even though the news and social media might say so many different things and, and you know uh, prophesy of the next great threat to the church, do not fear. Jesus Christ is your king. Amen? Amen. He will not lose. He can't lose. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is all-wise. He is all-knowing. There is nothing he cannot do. That's God's confidence. And look at verse 8. It says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, this great king is the one who who will receive all the blessings of the promises to Abraham. That the nations would come forth from him. And, And this is who Jesus is. And here's the irony of this. You see that it's the kings of the earth. We're trying to threaten God and take away God's authority, but God establishes His King, and God says, "I'm taking away your authority. It's His." Even any earthly powers today, no matter who it might be, they are only there because God allowed them to be there. They can't do anything outside of His will, and even the evil that they do, though it is not God doing the evil, God knows how to use it for your good. That's Romans eight twenty eight. God's king will destroy God's enemies. Look at verse 9. You shall... That's actually the same Hebrew language in the commandments. You shall, not just you will. You shall, a definitive word. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. A potter's vessel was actually this. In the ancient Near East and Egyptian culture, each city in Egypt would have its name written on a very fragile uh, pottery jar. And they would take that pottery jar and they would put it in the temple to their gods. And if one of those cities, if they rebelled against the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh would come in and he would take that jar and as a sign of judgment and as a sign of prophecy of what he's going to do, he'd take that jar and he'd shatter it on the ground. See, here's what happens if you're God's enemies. If you stay on that side of the battle lines, he will shatter you into a million pieces that cannot be put back together. This is a warning psalm. This is a psalm that's meant to sober us up. And we need to hear it. You see, this is not, life is not like Star Wars. I love Star Wars. But it's not like where you have a little band of rebels and they're looking at this monstrous superpower, and as long as they have just at least at least one Jedi, you know, who can make one really good shot and it happens to hit and the whole base blows up, and then they just they come back and they fight him again. The rebels have a chance, right? The rebels win the day. It's not like that. Not like that with God. Rebels don't stand a chance. It's not like March Madness. We love underdogs. We love watching these little bitty Davids beat Goliath. But here's the thing. No one can defeat God. He's undefeated. It's crazy to fight a fight you can't win. God will destroy His enemies, and we see this ultimately on the cross, don't we? Because when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he goes to the cross as the substitute for sinners. Think about, think about that. The king of heaven would go and be treated like he's merely one of the kings of earth who are rebelling against God. He would take the sins of his people upon his back, a weight that is unfathomable. God would pour out his wrath upon him, and he turned worth of wrath in a moment of hours. And when Jesus cries, remember that last word, to Telestai: it is finished. He would give up his life to death in order to crush the head of the serpent, Satan, the great enemy. But did Jesus stay dead? He did not stay dead. He rose again, and as Romans says, he rose again in power. He conquers death. He conquers Satan. He conquers sin. And here's the victory of the cross. The victory of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ says, I am the true king. There is no one that can defeat me. And he ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of Father as we see in Daniel 7 that Jacob will preach later on this semester. That he is the true son of man who reigns and he rules. Sure enough, one day there will be that great judgment day where everyone will be raised from the dead, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting death. All depending on the relationship of you to that king. You see, there's a surety of this outcome. You see, and if you're one of God's children, have faith, he will win. He will. He's undefeated. And if you're not, don't pick a fight you can't win. Look at verses 10 through 12. God's enemies, lastly, they're warned by God. Look, I know this is heavy, but this is is the way it's written. And if preaching is not just something that I want to create, but is literally trying to, it is God speaking to you, this isn't just hearing my opinion. It's trying to hear the Lord speaking through someone from His Word to you. God wants you to hear it the way He wrote it. And He gives this warning in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. I remember waking up for 6 a.m. workouts at Tulane and you'd walk in there and you'd be so tired and Our coach who just, who knows what else was in his coffee. That man was just ready to go. He walked by with those smelling salts. And you'd be ready to get under the squat rack. And before he would just watch you just injure your whole career right then and there. He'd come by with the smelling salts. And he'd just kind of wave it in front of your nose. And you'd say, oh, here we go. You're up. You're rolling. Okay? Psalm 2 is smelling salts for the spiritual life. And we do need this. You see, 1 Corinthians talks about how the world's wisdom, as it were, is merely foolishness to God. Matter of fact, God's foolishness is wiser than the world's wisdom. God is calling the the rulers and his enemies, he's calling them be wise, be warned. Is actually wisdom language here in the Hebrew. But here's what's interesting about this. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge that you have. You've been hearing up to this point a lot of knowledge, a lot of facts. Because this is the reality of the way things are. Now here's the question. What are you going to do with that? Here's what God's telling you to do with that. Repent. Act upon this knowledge. Repent and run to Jesus Christ for mercy. See, here's the thing. If God was only wrath, your life would be over. He has given you breath in life. Why? Because he bids you to come. Because when you come to him, he doesn't rake you over the coals. He doesn't dangle your sins over your head. He gives you infinite love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. He treats you with a gentle and lowly heart. He treats you in the way, ways in which the world can never embrace you. It's all because of Jesus. Jesus. God has placed His love upon His people in eternity past. And He is calling you to come and embrace that. But you have to respond in this life. Don't wait until later. Don't wait until after college where then you can think about real things. Then you can get your life together. Remember, your then moment is coming. And you don't know when. I've had teammates die very very young. The classmates die. And the older you get, you'll see people die early. And I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to say there is a reality that at some point, your then moment will come. And actually, the more you just say, God, not yet, actually what that does is it hardens your heart. It makes you less sensitive to His truth. But God is calling you tonight, come. Come. And in Jesus Christ, you'll no longer be treated as an enemy. You'll be treated as a child of God. That's what you can have. God is inviting you to come. He's inviting you to repent, to to actually disagree with the way you're living now and to agree with God that He's right. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. God's calling us to to fear Him, to hold Him in utter reverence and attraction, but knowing that He is God. He's not just a teddy bear we bring along with us whenever we need a little bit of therapy. He's the King. He's not safe all the times, but He is good. He's the king, and he's calling us to reverence him. He's calling us, as his words say, to change our allegiance from ourselves to him. It's like King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Raise your hand if you're in the Daniel Bible study. A couple of y'all in there. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the top ten in the history of the world, was one of the top ten rulers ever. He literally had one of the seven wonders in his backyard the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, that's Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the greatest rulers ever. And one day he was looking out on his kingdom in Daniel chapter 4, and after numerous times when God had tried to grab his heart and he kept saying, no, 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 no. He said, this is my kingdom. This is mine. And God actually severely humbles him rather than just taking his life. And he actually drives him psychologically mad into the wilderness and he humbles them but then a better then moment a good then moment God restores him and he converts them here's what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter four verses thirty four to thirty five at the end of at the end of the days I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? God is the King. And if you run to him, you will receive mercy. And that's what verse 12 is calling you to. It says, Kiss the Son. In other words, pay homage to him, rest in him, live for him, kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. It's interesting because in the way is reminding you actually back to Psalm 1 where it says, Don't stand in the way of sinners. And sinners, when you stay in the way, you will eventually perish in that way. Don't stand in that way, but rather kiss the Son. Pay homage to Him. And here's what's amazing. This is a call for all of God's enemies actually to run to Him. This is actually a call for the Leah Thomases of the world to lay down their arms and come to Jesus Christ for mercy. This is a call for those who are living in the LGBTQ life to lay down your arms and come to Jesus for forgiveness. It's a call for those who have had abortions or who promote abortion to lay down your arms and come to Jesus for cleansing and mercy and love and forgiveness. For those of you who have been living in the hookup culture, who've been doing with your body whatever you want to do with it, those of you who have lived a life of prejudice and discrimination against others, or those of you who are persecuting God's people, or even those of you who are like the Apostle Paul and you've murdered Christians, come to Jesus Christ. and You will find mercy to anyone, to anyone in this room. That if you cry out to Him, He will save you. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. That's what the old preachers used to say. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. Tonight is the night of forgiveness. Don't wait. The devil wants you to wait. He wants you to say, not yet. Just keep enjoying your college life right now. No, no, Jesus says, don't wait. Come now. You'll actually find the freedom that you've actually been longing for. See, in Revelation 19, verses 15 to 16, it says of Jesus about the last judgment. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword, talking about the word of God. A sharp sword with which uh, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them. Hear the language from verse 9. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. If you're one of God's children, you have great hope. And one day he will make all things right. But if you are one of his enemies, don't pick a fight you can't win. There's a man who used to fly on these big cargo jets. And maybe you would let the cargo... Uh, the back door down and he would walk up to the very end and he would strap himself into a harness and he would defy death and defy gravity and he would, he would lean over the 30,000 foot abyss as the plane is going however many hundreds of miles per hour he's, he's leaning over and this harness is, is holding him in and he would do this time after time after time and it would just be amazing to his friends There's one day he, he went to do it again. And as he goes to the edge through the same rhythm, he begins to lean over again. And at the very last second, he realizes he's not strapped in. Thankfully, he falls to the ground and catches himself before he rolls out. And you can imagine what that fear would have done to him the rest of the flight. You see, so many of us in here are living our life as if that harness is always going to be attached to us and we can live however we want. But one day, the then moment will come. And you won't be able to catch yourself. And one of the most loving things I can tell you is this truth. Because Jesus had to take a thousand of those deaths, thousands of thousands of those deaths in him in a moment so that he might save his people. He saved you. He invites you to come to him. All of mercy and all of grace. He's not asking you to clean yourself up. He's asking you to lay down your arms and to pledge your allegiance to him. And He will give you love beyond anything you've ever imagined. I'd love to talk to you about that more. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your word would speak to us And Lord, sometimes you do give those smelling salts to us. Father, I know that there have been many times in my life when you've given me those smelling salts and it has been good, even though it's been hard. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would bring true and genuine conversion here. That we would see, Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And you invite us to come and receive mercy rather than die. Lord, glorify your name tonight. And may you bring true reformation and revival on this campus and everywhere these students go. We ask all this in your name. Amen.